Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hello. And with David Camefield. Hi. So this is going to be a big week for awards, as we'll get into, but I wanted to start with Sundance, um, which is ongoing right now in your living room and my living room. And Richard, I know in your living room, since you have been um, watching far more of it than the rest of us. And before we started recording, we were kind of, you know, using CODA as the benchmark for movies that break out of Sundance as we're in the middle of CODA's big awards run. And the sense from I'm getting from you and myself, too, is that there's not necessarily a CODA yet this year. What's the uh, the word on the ground of the or the virtual ground of Sundance this year? Word on the ground here is uh, why are you still watching movies? And that's the person I live with saying that to me. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I don't see a $25 million sale. You know, there's definitely been um, a few movies that have, you know, I'm really just going by Twitter at this point, uh, have seemed to like have a consensus that, oh, this is this is a, a, a great movie this year, but I don't see something at this point, there's still some things left to premiere that catches both that sort of chatter from people who watch and like the movie and um, a, a really kind of industry narrative uh, the way Coda did last year. Yeah. I mean, there was a novelty to the virtual Sundance last year. I'm kind of like with everything Omicron, like it's hard to believe we're doing this all over again. So I wonder if that that dampens some of it, too, that just like, oh, how, how am I supposed to get excited for another virtual premiere in my house? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. It's both easier this year and it's somehow more difficult. I think that difficulty comes from the fact that it was supposed to be, some of us were supposed to go in person and then, you know, upright, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, that was, that um, was canceled. So it feels a little bit like somehow more like a concessionary experience than did last year, which we always knew was going to be just digital. Um, uh, but, you know, on the other side of that coin though, is that I've watched way more movies than I normally would because there was supposed to be an in-person component um, at the festival this year, there's bigger stuff like, you know, stuff mm. with that already had distribution that was willing to screen, you know, at the festival, um, you know, some of the better movies I've seen, Oh, there's an Amazon logo. There's a searchlight logo, you know, and I think maybe that's also why we're not hearing about big distributing, you know, sort of scrambles to, to pick something up, you know, bidding wars and all that is because a lot of this is entering the festival already uh, sorted in that regard. Yeah, I've watched five movies total, and I can get into them, but two of them have been A24 releases already, um, which, you know, is a guiding principle. Like, if something is already picked up, it's not the best way to discover something new, but if you're just trying to catch, like, whatever the biggest wave is going to be, it's not a bad uh, path to follow. And I hate to say it, but it does sometimes connote quality, you know, yeah, or, or at least something interesting, um, because there's plenty of stuff at any film festival that... Uh, isn't bad, but it's just kind of, eh. and if it has distribution, it's probably there's something there. Well, so for the movies with distribution that listeners can count on seeing at some point in the future, and you know, given the pattern of Sundance releases, probably released this year and therefore eligible for next year's Oscars. Like, what what is a highlight for you, Richard, that people should keep an eye out for, or you know, if you want to make your bold Oscar predictions for next year, now's the time. Well, Oscar predictions, I don't know about, but um, 
Focus Features has a film called um, You Won't Be Alone, which is Australian slash Macedonian. It's from an Australian filmmaker who, who is of Macedonian extraction, North Macedonian extraction, I believe. And it's about a witch in the 19 or 1800s in rural Macedonia kind of traversing through life and can shapeshift into different people's bodies. It's very arty. People have compared it both positively and negatively to Terrence Malick. Um, you have a couple, you know, boldish face names in there. Numi Rapace shows up briefly. Uh, Alice Englert, daughter of Jane Campion, is in there. N- um, neither of them speak because the lead character doesn't speak, except in voiceover, kind of like the piano speaking of Campion. <laughs> um, it starts and you think it's going to be this gory, elevated horror uh, about the squalor of you know this witch's existence but it turns out to be this beautiful really moving i thought portrait or 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 kind of investigation into what it is to be alive and what it is to be uh, one gender or a different gender and you know it kind of feels like orlando in that way and um I was really, really, really taken by it in a way that felt like I was just staggering out of, you know, the WC theater at Cannes. It, it, it mm. really felt, um, it didn't qu- feel quite, you know, quote unquote, sundancy and that it wasn't a quirky little American slice of life. It's something much more epic and, and different than that. But um, yeah, so I really like that. And focus yeah. features apparently felt the same. Yeah, I watched it on your recommendation and felt really similarly. And uh, I think, you know, saying that there's a Sundance movie inspired by Malik can really set some people's teeth on edge, but I think it really pulls it off. Um, because of all the reasons you were saying, you know, it's got this setting that's unfamiliar for most American viewers and these really strong performances, even as this mute character. And just the the kind of push-pull between this this witch character who's really incredible and, like, brittle and tough and the the subtitles are this amazing feat of translation where the language that both of these characters use is odd but very specifically odd and you can just hear it in the English even though they're not speaking English um and then this you know this young witch who's like discovering that like it's beautiful to like watch a fire burn or like cut grass or something like that you know these very simple pleasures in life but it doesn't feel pat or simple um I'm very intrigued that this is a focus release. It doesn't like, you know, from the studio that brought you Belfast is not quite how I would match this film up. But I'm really interested to see what kind of audience it would find. Oh, you didn't get that it was a Belfast sequel? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Kenneth Brand is like lurking in the background in the witch's cave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's, I wonder what they see in it. You know, um, I'm glad that they do see something viably commercial or whatever in it, uh, because I think it, it it's a movie that if I didn't know that going in, that it had this rather large company attached to it, I would worry that no one would buy it, you know, because yeah. the reviews have been positive, but they're, you know, but mixed because um, some people have been really put off by the Malik thing. So, yeah, I think that's that's cool. And and and, you know, maybe it will play other festivals throughout the year. I think, you know, a, a couple other movies I saw uh, and I was like, well, you know, that that should wait. You know, they should definitely try to get that through to uh, Telluride or Toronto. And I think one of those would be uh, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, which I don't know, Katie, yeah. that feels oh. like the big hit of the festival. Yeah, although it hasn't been bought yet, as far as I know, right? I mean, possibly by the time people hear this, it will have. It does seem like inevitable to get pick up. I mean, David and Rebecca, I was going to ask you what had crossed your transom as existing. And I'm imagining that movie with Emma Thompson uh, is one that even if you're not covering Sundance, you know, exists, right? Yeah, definitely. That's the one that I'm really excited to see. And uh, hearing Emma Thompson is a great interesting vehicle is always good news. So um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's one that's broken through as far as I can tell. I wasn't at the Sundance where late night premiered last time there was a big Emma Thompson vehicle at Sundance, but I feel like this has been even better received than that one was. And 
Yeah, Richard, I I really liked it, even though it felt like sort of like a play and like sort of didactic in some ways, but kind of won me over regardless. Where did you land on it? Well, yeah, I'm someone who like raced out of the late night premiere, went back to my condo, wrote a rave review and then like looked to my left, looked to my right, like, guys, aren't we all here? And then no one was there because no one else <laughs> felt the same way I did. So um, but I think this one is a different story. I actually watched it a couple like a day after it premiered. So I sort of caught the second wave of it. And um, I was maybe a little bit less up on it than, uh, you know, the people who watched it immediately when it premiered on, I think, Saturday night. But yeah, it's strong. It is it is a talky two-hander for the most part. But it's directed by Sophie Hyde, who made a really, really great film called Animals that was actually at Sundance the same year Late Night was uh, with Holiday Granger. And if people haven't seen that movie, please seek it out. It's so good. Holiday Granger would have been my choice for Best Actress that year. Um, wow. it's, a, it's a really great film. Um, and, and it's very different in structure and, and tone um, than this is. So it's interesting to watch Hyde kind of shift like that. But the, the centerpiece, other than... Uh, Emma Thompson's co-star, Daryl McCormick, I believe his name is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, who is beautiful and it's remarked upon throughout. Um, he's also Extremely handsome, yes. Yeah, and it's remarked upon and, and he's also very charming and whatnot. But um, the well, he's central... playing a male escort, so, you know, his business is literally being very attractive. Yes, it's a it's a business doing pleasure with him. Um, and <laughs> uh, to quote Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, sorry. Um, but... Um, it's Emma Thompson you do playing a sort of, um, you know, a retired teacher who's widowed and and uh, has never uh, had an orgasm trying to achieve that over several sessions with this sex worker. And it's, you know, a comedy setup. It's a drama setup. It's everywhere in between. Um, it's really lovely. And Thompson just holds, holds, holds your attention throughout. And, you know, it feels like if purchased by the right distributor and handled right, which I think would involve going to some fall festivals, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, that is, I think, something like as close to a Emma Thompson Lockford nomination um, than we've gotten of any sort of award certainty at this festival. Yeah, it feels at least like the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards will like invent several new categories of awards to give to this one because it's uh, it's going to get their attention. Oh, yeah. Uh, the award for best film that taught us to live again goes to, you know, or something. <laughs> it's a popular genre. Yeah. That Actually, that's not every award. Sorry. There you go. Um, Rebecca, is there anything that has caught your attention as a Sundance movie you were curious about that maybe Richard I have seen, maybe not? I think um, the thing that is broken through the most for me in my you know, watching on Twitter is that documentary Fire of Love. I know there was mm -hmm. actually a bidding war for it and Nat Geo picked it up. I mean, it feels like it's about a volcano hunter couple. I haven't seen it yet, but um, I feel like, the, you know, that's going to be a film we're going to be talking about for next award season. It, it You know, I, there's always quite a few docs that come out, but I think that's the one that I've, I've sort of heard the most buzz about and, and we'll definitely be checking out. Yeah. I would agree. Um, and Nat Geo picking it up made perfect sense to me because I think if you think buzzy nature documentary from a festival over the last few years, you think Free Solo, you think The Rescue. Those have all been mm -hmm. Nat Geo films. Like they they know what they're doing with this kind of thing. Although, and Richard, I, I'm curious if you agree, it's it's not anything really like either of those movies. It's made by a different filmmaker in a different style. And it's it's kind of more poetic and quirky in a way um, that I really liked, even though it's about, you know, this wonder and beauty and savagery of nature. Yeah, it's Miranda July narrating a story about, you know, volcanoes and love and death. And, you know, it's it's um it's not it's not like a linear. I mean, it is linear, but it's it, yeah, it feels like a documentary plus or something. It's interesting. I, I, I think that the Nat Geo purchase is interesting because it doesn't feel quite as like up close and sciencey or or naturey mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, I mean, it is very much about nature, but 
Um, so yeah, I'll be, I'll be curious to see where that goes. There have been a couple other documentaries like Descendant, which is about, you know, a slave ship that sank near Mobile, Alabama and the, and the people living now who are descendants of the people who were rescued from that. And that's really uh, stirring and interesting. Um, and then there've been, you know, the Sinead O'Connor doc and other things. So I, I have still have to sift through a lot of those um, in the remaining days of the festival. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, it does feel like, what is it? Fire of love, right? Mm -hmm. um, Fire of love, yeah. It seems to be the, the buzziest of them by kind of a wide margin. There's also the, uh, what, three-hour Kanye West documentary? Or is it even longer than that? That I, uh, I have not seen It's four and a half it. hours, oh, I believe. Because it's three, it's, three it's three pieces, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that one's going to be on Netflix fairly soon, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and the and the Cosby one is going to be on Showtime this Sunday, the yeah. premiering. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. There's the um, I think it's the movie Master that's coming out on Amazon Prime like in March. Like, there's a lot yeah. of stuff coming very soon. I wanted to talk about Master because mm. it's an interesting film that is, you know, I think we talked about it last week when we were previewing things a little bit. You know, that mixes uh, horror with social commentary. And uh, there's a lot of that at Sundance this year, uh, not all of it terribly successful, but this film from Mariama Diallo, um, I think does it the best. Um, and that's, you know, it's set in a college campus. It's about the functions of race for a professor and for a student and the legacies of, you know, these kind of Ivy'd, not necessarily Ivy League, but, you know, these old, you know, venerable college campuses and and when they when they preach about diversity and inclusion now what does that really mean and what compromise is someone making uh both with themselves and with their cultural history um when they kind of agree to you know take part in this ecosystem um and so it's really chilling and sad and at the center of that is regina hall who is really really great in it and has one scene in particular toward the end where um i don't think i've ever seen her do um acting uh, in that style you know or, or in that vein before and that's really exciting she had another film here um more of a comedy that she was also really good in so i'll be curious to see how master fares when it is available on amazon um in a month or two and but I hope that Regina Hall would at least be kept in mind for critics' prizes and stuff like that. Um, if not, the movie might be a little too small for Oscar stuff, but maybe not. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about uh, Support the Girls and the amount of yeah. uh, attention she got for that. Well, very well deserved. Yeah, she's just really good. And it's it's cool to see that posts support the girls. And maybe the New York Film Critics Circle win helped this some. Hey! I don't know. Maybe maybe no one pays attention, but that she's been getting really interesting work of late. Um, and uh, it's really paying off. And I think Master is a, a exciting. You know, I, I was kept thinking about her being in the scary movie movies, you know, years ago. <laughs> and now she's kind of back in horror, but in a very, very different style. Not that scary movies were actually horror. They were comedy. But you know, it's 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 cool. She's had a, a really interesting career and um is really firing on all cylinders at the moment. Well, Sundance will be going on for a little bit longer, so possibly next week we'll have a few more things to catch up on. Uh, any other last things to mention or praise? I thought Fresh was dark and fun and interesting. Um, that is a film starring Daisy Edgar-Jones from Normal People. I think this is her big post-that-show film that, um, you know, maybe the first thing she booked or whatever. Um, it's her and Sebastian Stan. It's directed by Mimi Cave, written by Lauren Kahn. And a lot of the, the, you know, the below the line production people are women. So it's a very female centric film and, and production uh, about a very bad man and a one woman or actually a couple women's uh, fight against him. Um, I'm not going to spoil anything more than that. It's a kind of about Tinder culture gone wrong in some ways. Uh, it's really gruesome. It's very gory, but also fun and kind of light 
and playful in a weird way. Um, and I thought it was really entertaining. And and Daisy Edward Jones makes quite an impression. She and Stan are great together. Um, and I think it'll be maybe a hit, although there have been more negative reviews for it than I anticipated. Uh-oh, the Sundance fever is getting you even uh, even in your living room. Well, yeah, Joe Reed posted something interesting on Twitter, which was like, okay, so who the people who kind of, you know, scold the the Sundance, you know, fever reactions, how, what, what are they going to blame it on if they can't do it for altitude? You know, like mm-hmm. it's, that's always the thing. It's like, oh, you're, you've got mountain sickness or whatever. It's like very few of us are in the mountains. So what is it? Yeah. Um, I want to shout out one thing and then before we move on, and this is, uh, it was premiered uh, earlier, but after Yang, I finally got to see as part of Sundance mm-hmm. as the Coconata movie. It was at Cannes last summer, right? Richard, did you see it in Cannes? I saw it before Cannes. Oh, uh, well then, yeah. excuse me. Um, I don't want to talk too much about it because it, it'll be out for May 24 at some point this year, um, but I had really high expectations for it after seeing Columbus from Coconata, and I think it really lived up to them as this kind of like futuristic sci-fi tinged movie about people and families and like figuring out what your past means and figuring out what it means to raise a child and, you know, all kinds of big questions. Um, Colin Farrell is really wonderful in it, as is Haley Lou Richardson, uh, who was great in Columbus, too. Um, and it has the best title sequence of... I, it ha- if there is a better one this year, I will be stunned. Um, so something to look forward to in the in the first minutes of After Yang, you can be thrilled as I was. A colleague who saw it in Cannes texted me and said, "I just watched it again, but for the I just watched the opening credit sequence and then turned it on to watch something else <laughs> because that opening credits is so good." Oh no, because like the Sundance platform, like you have five hours after you start yeah. it, so it's the minute I ended the movie, I rerun and rewatched the opening <laughs> credits. So I was like, I, I need to see it again before it disappears off of yeah. my screen. Um, All right. So, yeah, we'll talk more about Sundance next week. And um, if you are, um, you know, let us know if you're seeing anything. I'm very curious about who who is not a professional critic who is watching Sundance stuff. So please let us know what you're watching. So back to this current award season this week, uh, right around the time you're hearing this episode, possibly on Thursday, there is going to be this slew of award nominations from various guilds. There's a lot going on this week. The Art Directors Guild, Sound Editors, Cinematographers. But on Thursday, there's three huge ones. The Directors Guild, the Producers Guild and the Writers Guild will all announce their nominees uh, on the day that happens to be the first day of Oscar voting. Probably not a coincidence. Um David, I was asking you this before we started, and I don't know if you know for sure, but like, was it always supposed to be this crazy pileup on one day or did Omicron make this happen? I don't think it's either Omicron or typical. I think there was some movement with like SAG deciding to go a little bit later than usual and um, just general, you know, rethinking of the calendar after everything that happened last season and all the weird shifts that were pandemic induced. So I, I think that <laughs> You'd theorize that, um, like, one guild was like, let's announce noms on Oscar voting day. And then there was just a pileup from that. And honestly, that's by far the best explanation I can think of, uh, is that it's just, it's a new theory that seemed to make sense for a lot of these groups. Um, but I can't remember in the years I've been covering awards, a guild day as uh, stacked as that one, let alone <laughs> that it's also on the day that nomination voting starts for the Academy. Yeah. So um, everything is happening, I guess, today, <laughs> listeners. Yeah. I Because we were talking about this, I, I looked back and last year they, and probably every year before that, they were DJ and Writers Guild have always been within a day of each other, but yeah. are, are very close together um, or within a week, but they've never been on the same day before. So... I think it's really interesting. It could give some films a huge boost if they do well in all three. 
Yeah, that's true. The, the sense of like suddenly surging just because they all happen to come out at the same time um, could be really interesting. Um, although I got an email from uh, Netflix noting that um, some really strong contenders like Power the Dog won't be eligible at the WGA. Um, so there's going to be weird surprises, I think, in all of these. Is, is there any other kind of strange wrinkles that we that people should be prepared for before they read too much into these? Um, with the Producers Guild, there's almost always that one nominee that kind of represents the great hope of theatrical movie going a really strong uh, box office success. And um, I think there are a couple options for what would take that slot this year. House of Gucci feels like maybe the obvious one, just given we already know it's strong in the industry with its SAG showing. Um, But I think you could even look to something like No Time to Die, which has been popping up on a lot of precursor industry lists or dare dare i suggest spider-man knowing i was gonna say spider-man yeah i mean yeah it's 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 another one to look at because the producers guild and those movies rarely go on to best picture nominations um like knives out was another one um from a couple years ago that i think of that did really well um but wasn't necessarily that clearly in the best picture conversation Although, would you say it maybe helped Knives Out get that screenplay nomination? That it did totally. And, and then, you know, to your point about the Writers Guild, because there are a lot of contenders that are ineligible, seeing who does make the list, you know, say Power of the Dog would have replaced X, um, who that X is indicates that maybe the movie is doing a little bit better than we think. So again, like maybe House of Gucci gets a writing nomination just because that Power of the Dog is ineligible, Lost Daughter, which we're expecting to be nominated as ineligible. There are there are a couple openings there for movies that are not seen as strong contenders, um, but uh, could showcase that they are being seen, being liked by various branches. Um, so that's also something to look for. Can you explain to our listeners uh, and uh, to me why <laughs> those movies aren't eligible? It's, as far as I know, it's because the WGA is one of the few awards that requires a guild membership for their awards of these big ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the WGA is much stricter than other guilds for this. And uh, especially international productions often um, you know, don't have a writer who is attached to WGA. Um, I know Jane Campion was nominated i think for the piano so something she stopped paying her dues she stopped paying her dues (laughs) or or whatever happened there so that's a especially surprising one but there's always some um that aren't on that list because of their rules every year yeah and like so this year you have i mentioned the lost daughter and also passing which are first time screenplays from well-known actors maggie gyllenhaal and rebecca hall so it's not it's not a huge surprise that they're not eligible this go around. They have very strict guidelines that I think even go beyond that. And there's always a very substantial list of ineligible productions as a result of them. But yeah, it's it's always it's always a grab bag of who is not able. And Quentin Tarantino is the most infamous example of uh, an American screenwriter who has never, as far as I know, been eligible just because he's never participated with the union Who's in that done, way. Done just fine, it seems. <laughs> and he's he's won multiple screenplay Oscars, so it doesn't yeah. it doesn't usually impact your standing in that way. So my thought is that you know PGA has a has a list of ten and excuse kind of populist WGA has all these eligibilities. So if you're kind of trying to look at like what is the rock solid strongest in the Oscar race, the DGA seems like the place to look. Um, and I feel like we've paid less attention to the director's race in a way because Jane Campion has seemed like such a runaway uh, favorite this whole time. I I wouldn't I think her getting snubbed from the DGA would be insane. Um, so I wouldn't expect that to happen. But do you think we'll get some clarity on the rest of the race by who joins her in that category? 
Yeah, it's extremely rare for a DGA nominee to not go on to a Best Picture nomination. Like, almost yeah. always that five is a strong five Best Picture. So probably half of our lineup will be announced by DGA, especially with the the Oscar expansion to 10 Best Picture nominees. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I feel like there's a pretty consensus five of Power of the Dog, Dune, Belfast, West Side Story, and Licorice Pizza are probably the top five contenders that you would you would think of or maybe you don't look up in there as well um but you know i wonder if the dga lobs for someone like guillermo del toro who's been making a really strong push the last few weeks with nightmare alley and who is so beloved by his fellow directors or even a joel cohen um who is a past dga winner with his brother um with tragedy Macbeth has also been picking up some steam so that's a really yeah that's a that'll be a very telling race yeah i think the question is if Guillermo or someone like that gets in, I don't know who is pushed out. Right. You know, yeah. it's such a strong five it, it, that feels so solid. Uh, but yes, I agree with David. It's going to, it'll be very telling whoever gets those nominations. Haven't we been so nervous about West Side Story because it keeps missing in weird places? Or is Spielberg just so strong in and of himself that he'll get in there regardless? I have a hard time seeing him missing. Yeah, it feels like he gets in regardless. He's Steven Spielberg, people. <laughs> <laughs> like, maybe the Academy. Like, the Academy's direct, directing branch is known to do... Remember when they snubbed Ridley Scott mm. uh, for The yeah. Martian, uh, who was a DGA nominee? And, and in that vein, like, you could see maybe an international contender bumping someone like Spielberg. Um, but I don't think that DGA would skew that way. I, I almost... I would I would have to guess that maybe PTA uh, would be a little bit more vulnerable with DGA, just given he doesn't have as foolproof a track record as a, in, a, in directing races um, right. in the past. Or, or maybe I don't know. I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> just name I'm every like, single one, of the five, one. <laughs> and you'll be right. I don't think I think Jane and Denis are probably as locked as you can get for for DGA, yeah. and honestly, Branna too, because. Belfast is 100% a Best Picture nominee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so even if Brana missed directing lineup, I'm rambling. I'm going to stop. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for the DGA winners, and they have all these little indicators like, did get did win the Oscar, didn't win the Oscar, wasn't nominated for the Oscar, and it's like this little funny little S shape. And Ben Affleck won the DGA. Like, uh, Ron right. Howard won the DGA. And also Spielberg won it for Color Purple and wasn't nominated. So of like of these famous directing snubs uh, in history, often they won the DGA, and Spielberg was the victim of one. So who knows? Well, before we get to the interview part of the show, uh, we want to just wrap up with us uh, because Oscar voting is starting as you listen to this. And if you were an Oscar voter listening and you need one last push in a direction um, for who to maybe put down on your ballot, we want to help you out. So maybe we'll go around, um, go around the group and just one last person that you want to give a nudge to. Uh, Richard, let's start with you. Who do you want voters to reconsider one last time? I mean, judging from the movie's Instagram account, a lot of famous people have Instagrammed about loving the worst person in the world, which hopefully means good things for Renata Reinsva, who is the star of that film. And I thought was, you know, always kind of one of those pie in the sky, like, eh, that'll never happen kind of thing. She didn't win at critics groups in the way that I thought she would. She was very close. But um, so I would I would love it if the Academy, um, you know, loved that movie enough to have her break through, not just, you know, for best international feature, but but for her performances. She's really the, you know, one one of the two real, you know, anchors of that film. Um, but I, I don't know. You know, I think there are other actors in um, foreign language films that um, are probably ahead of her in line, let's say. But yeah, Renata Reinsfeld would be really cool. 
That um that best actress race is so crazy competitive, but I wonder yeah. if that like would almost give her an edge because it's so competitive. You know, there's all these huge, huge stars like right up at the top. It, it feels right for surprise one way or another. Uh, Rebecca, how about you? Well, we were just talking about this while we were not recording, but I think and and she probably I think hopefully will get nominated. But I'm I'm going to push for Rachel Ziegler. I know Ariana Debose has gotten a lot of the praise and attention and, and deserves it for her performance in West Side Story. But you know Rachel is she's just a movie star in in this lead role in in the film and and I think has. Um, taken some unfair criticism recently um, because she is so fresh to this whole process and and so sweet and optimistic and excited and and sometimes that gets a little beat up during the awards race so um, I just think she deserves the attention for for what she did for that film all right David your turn I'm gonna go with Coleman Domingo for Zola Ooh, Um, good pick who I think we've talked a lot about the supporting actor race feeling not necessarily thin, but kind of like just being stacked with best picture contending performances and looking for a little bit more life or intrigue. And and he's so completely commanding and fascinating in this movie and has been doing so much great work the last few years. If you saw the Euphoria special episode over the pandemic or Ma Rainey's Black Bottom from last year, he's kind of been everywhere and showing his incredible range and in this movie he really gets the kind of role on screen that i've been hoping for for a long time and he's won a couple critics prizes but it's been a little frustrating that he's been so outside of this conversation given how good he is and Mm -hmm. and i would add that it's been 20 years since an openly gay man has been nominated for an acting oscar and He's there totally deserving. Might be an article you can read about that yeah, by on one David Canfield. <laughs> I mean, it, and he didn't he re- retweet it not to make you pat your own back, but he he's aware of that stat, right? He is. He he said it was interesting, <laughs> <laughs> and I think I you know, and I, I, he got phenomenal reviews for that movie. Uh, I think you know the actors. He was probably the the big breakout, especially of the supporting cast and. Um, He's someone who's been talked about a lot the last few years as someone who's getting his due more, uh, getting more of these meaty, interesting roles, um, who's been in the industry a long time. And so, um, yeah, I, I, he's aware of it. And I would say he's completely deserving to be in that five. And um, I would hope that some people agree. Um, I'm going to stick with supporting actor too, and I might be wasting my um, campaign on someone who's probably going to get nominated anyway, but I have been so happy to see Bradley Cooper surge for Licorice Pizza um, because Mm. I was so worried that the role would be too small for people to pay attention to, but he seems to be there in it right now, and I just want to um, make sure people don't like think of supporting the way that I think the category is meant to be, where you can have one or two scenes and it's not a bad thing. If you make an impact in that quickly, I think that really says more about the power of the performance. And and there's definitely still part of me that thinks if he gets nominated, like, could he surge in to win? Like, Cody Smith McPhee is so far out ahead, but he's never been nominated before. He's like a relatively fresh face. It, this, the race could get really interesting if Cooper gets in there. And I think we're all in favor of interesting races above all. Very much so. I think that category finally is getting a little more interesting, which is nice to see. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm also now getting to the point where it's like, what if none of the people we expect to get nominated? Because Oscar weren't, you know, I'll remembering the feeling when Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya were nominated in the same category. Like, no one saw that coming. You like you think you know everything because you've been talking about it for months. But I'm listening for that happen. Jesse Plemons nomination. I'm listening yeah. for it. I really yes. think it could happen in exactly that, that vein. Yeah. Yeah. Supporting actor might really be the place to look out for that. 
I just want to register if it if the if it kind of like passed by the uh, listeners' ears, the the article that David wrote about gay actors being nominated. Ian McKellen is the only one yep. <laughs> yeah. ever. Ever. Yeah. So think about that. That's a staggering statistic. I think. Yeah. On the for Absolutely. for women, the, the stat is slightly different, but um, still not great. And um, on TV, it's way more diverse, as you talked about in the piece, David, which is really excellent. People should read. It is a staggering statistic. <laughs> So now let's hear um, our last two interviews of, you know, this phase of Oscar voting. And I feel like we're really ending it on a um, on a bang. So first, um, let's hear you, Rebecca, talking to Guillermo del Toro, who we talked about earlier, director of Nightmare Alley, previous Oscar winner, kind of in the thick of the race right now. Um, and you also moderated a conversation with him and Jessica Chastain for the Reunited series, which was really delightful. So um, tell me about what we're going to hear now. Yeah, for this interview, which I think is my third or fourth with him this season, uh, but he's always a joy to talk to, so that's fine. Um, he talks a lot about sort of building the world of Nightmare Alley, which, you know, he had them build a whole circus set. Like, he was not going to cut any corners on that. And, of course, Guillermo is really known for his ability to sort of build out these worlds, which I thought was really interesting. And and then he goes into a little bit about um, how the shutdown affected him. I mean, Rooney Mara had a baby during the shutdown, and uh, Bradley Cooper lost 15 pounds. So he had a lot of uh, changes that went on while they were sort of on that hold. And it, it was a really interesting chat. Guillermo, you've spoken about how Nightmare Alley was a bit of a departure from your previous work. I'm curious if you could start by kind of telling me why you wanted to head in a little bit of a different direction with this film. Well, actually, every time I make a movie, I, I try to make the next one different, you know, and it can be a variation between Pan's Labyrinth and Pacific Rim, which is a different type of variation, or Devil's Backbone to Blade, etc. So I, I really like to find new tools and approach areas of great interest to me that I have not approached before. So I can go to manga and anime on Pacific Rim, or I can go to a love story, fully love story with The Shape of Water. And I wanted very much all my life, I've been a collector of uh, mentalism and magic and, and uh, at the same time of hard-boiled uh, literature and noir film. In fact, I've been very close to making a noir all throughout my career, and it hasn't happened. And I thought this is the perfect moment after Shape of Water to try and, and do this. And I was very interested in reflecting, which noir always does. It reflects the moment it's made. And I was very interested in reflecting this moment of enormous anxiety and sort of end of the world feel that that I have at least uh, as I wake up every morning, and this character that uses this populist uh, sort of uh, dishonest uh, erasure of the line between lies and truth uh, to confound people that need to hear what he has to say, I thought was very very pertinent uh, right now and back then. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the feeling he has, which he confesses, he says, I've been afraid every day of my life. The feeling he has that he is two minutes away from losing everything and the floor to disappear under his feet. This is, these are the things that led me to that. And I knew that the tools I used to tell the story uh, would needed to be utilized in a different way than I normally use them. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously your film is based on a book from 1946 by William Lindsay Gresham. Um, and so I'm curious how much did you know about the writer and, and how much did his own life inspire how you told this story? It became vital. It became even more vital to know about him and obviously read his other books and read about him. It became uh, almost as vital as the book. The Nightmare Alley was sort of an, an autobiography of the soul. His quest for finding himself, and he, which was a quest that he was very much dreading, but very much pursuing. Uh, his nightmarish uh, alcoholism, uh, his loss of everything, all of this informed the movie. When he committed suicide in the same room that he wrote Nightmare Alley in, one of his uh, personal cards read and was printed, professionally printed, and it read, you'd rather die than face the truth. Mm. And we basically knew that was uh, vital for the movie to to have a movie that burns very slowly like a ramp and then culminates in a precipitous uh, fall at the end. And, and, and with that fall comes almost every human emotion, uh, loss, sadness, infinite sadness, and relief. And uh, I think uh, that was important because of William Lindsay Gresham. You know, you're mentioning this ending. I don't want to spoil it for people who are maybe still going to go see the film at this point, but it is such a gut punch. And and I'm curious, when you were directing Bradley Cooper, uh, who stars in the film, how how do you get an actor to that place where, where they're ready to do something like that? Uh, the, the, the beautiful thing with Bradley is, obviously, in my opinion, he's giving a career-best performance. Mm-hmm. And, and we had been shooting for a while by then. And I knew that the, the, I could expect only the truth from Bradley. He's always like a seeker of truth. And we knew that every day we would discover or things would be revealed about Stan every morning of the shoot. And we were going into this scene, which was, we know, the most important scene in the movie, the one why we made the movie, all of us. Uh, and then we, re- we realized that we had to shoot it weeks before we had planned it because we had an emergency. We had hurricane level winds and uh, we knew that we would either lose the day or shoot it. And we said, well, let's do it, let's try it. And we got it in that first try. And, and, and the way you, I think, you work with an actor for one scene is you've been working with that actor for weeks. In other words, now we had a common language. My instincts and his instincts lined up and uh, we were like two gazelles in a forest fire. We would react uh, to the same noises, the same warning signs, the same hopes, uh, almost within a difference of five minutes from each other. Wow. And I mean, this whole cast is incredible. You know, I think Kate Blanchett delivers such a phenomenal performance, Rooney Mara. I'm curious for you, casting this, which character was most difficult to find the right actor for? We actually wrote the parts for most of the actors, so it was okay. it was uh, pretty seamless. I think Mark Povinelli uh, was a huge blessing because uh, he came into our lives uh, through Boardwalk Empire. I, I just was blown away by him, and it's a part that uh, 
requires a face that looks of the period, an attitude that feels of the period too. It was a, uh, it was a blessing, and um, I think Holt, who plays Anderson, the bodyguard, uh, also, uh, I was crossing my fingers he would say yes because he's not a starring role and he was a starring part on uh, Manhunter, and and I was very trepidatious about approaching him for, for a part that I thought was vital and beautiful, but uh, that would be maybe not commensurate with his stature on the TV show. And those were blessings, but, uh, you know, I think that uh, we had the perfect cast, in my opinion, the perfect cast for the movie. So almost everyone, it sounds like, was your first choice or the person you intended it for. Yeah, the, the one of the great uh, sort of finds was the fact that we aim for the sky with Mary Stimbergen. Uh, and she immediately read it. It was a part that was written in abstract, and I didn't think we could find, uh, you know, we said, well, who is essentially incredibly moving, incredibly trust-worthy uh, and uh, truthful, and we thought uh, her, because it's the beginning of the the last third of the movie, which we knew uh, rhythmically needed to accelerate towards the ending, and, and we knew that her scene, the murder-suicide, led into accelerating that final third. Yeah. And... I know you had to shut down for the pandemic sort of partway through filming and Rooney Mara during that time had a baby, Bradley Cooper, uh, I think lost a lot of weight. Can you tell me about? And I gained a lot of weight. (laughs) (laughs) But tell me about how, what were the blessings of having that shut down? The most evident for me was that the black and white uh, came out of that because we uh, the DP and I had talked about making a black and white movie in color. Uh, basically, that was the mantra for me. And we were having the contrast ratio and the way we lit it was either a, a classical Hollywood film or expressionist filmmaking. But during the pandemic, uh, we edited the material and I started viewing it in black and white, actually, in my computer. And I, I thought, is not, it is not crazy to think that we can release it in black and white and in color, or in color. And that, that, was, that came from that long pause of six months. And then when I, we reapproached it in the carnival, the way I framed the compositions, everything was a lot more towards the possibility of it existing in black and white, and, and, and that came from that. The fact that we could calibrate Bradley in a younger, quote-unquote, in a younger self, in a more uh, open self in the carnival, in the writing, in the in his scenes with Pete, they become they became a little deeper because we understood that Pete needed to be more paternal, you know. That that was all. Those were blessings. Interesting. So you're obviously really known for your world building. Jessica Chastain said that uh, to you when I did an interview with you and her and. And we see that again with this film. But I'm curious, when it came to sort of building the circus world, what did you find most challenging about that? What was sort of in your mind for it to look like? Well, look, practically challenging was the fact that we made the decision to build it for real in the middle of a field. Uh, 
uh, mm. because I didn't want it to feel uh, like a notion, like a conceit aesthetically. I needed it to be weathered and alive with the wind, the tents flap and beat like a heart or a lung. And the, uh, then we applied uh, almost military engineering. We laid out a football field size uh, ground dugout, put uh, steam and water pipes underneath to keep the water uh, flowing through the mud and the steam coming through the ground, electrical systems, blah, blah, blah. But from a conceptual point of view, I knew that there were two parts to the movie that needed to stand distinctly on camera work and design. And I thought, let make, let's make the circus garish and real, uh, the carnival, garish and real, do a deep dive into investigating all the material, make sure that the layering of it from the popcorn bag to the plaster prices, everything is accurate to the period. But let's emphasize the color red, sort of the life, and then subtract the color red almost entirely from the city. Let's frame the circus with a lot of skies that look like a painting by an American realist like Thomas Hart Benton or Grant Wood uh, or, uh, you know, uh, Wyeth. Uh, and let's make the city like an Edward Hopper painting, you know, like this cold architecture and enveloping these guys. So the circus became uh, really important because it needed to feel nightmarish but real, uh, dreamlike but real. It needed to feel accurate to the period, but at the same time compelling enough that you that you were uh, led by it. Because ultimately, this movie has a very sort of uh, rough, brutal reality in the storytelling, uh, the dramaturgy of it, but audiovisually we had to com make it very compelling, almost seductive, so you kept watching because the world was so powerfully designed. Yeah. Uh, I have a two-parter question for you here. Tell me about the most stressful day on set and then the most fun day on set. Well, I actually think all the days were pretty stressful because uh, we were battling, the first part, we were battling a brutal cold winter. We were in sub-zero temperatures with huge winds uh, almost all the time. We, we were doing an exercise in shooting the movie with a very mobile camera, which made it all a little difficult. There's not a shot in the movie where the camera is not moving. And... The most fun day, to me, one of the most fun days uh, is the scene in the carousel between uh, Molly and Stanton. Everything just uh, fell into place in a beautiful way, and uh, we were able to time it so the shadows would cross his face at the right time. And, and it seemed to me like the rapport between them was as perfect as we wanted it to be. And the second most fun day was shooting them at the bus station. Uh, all, uh, it, all of a sudden, we saw the world because the city is no exteriors almost, just interiors in contrast with the skies of the carnival, right? So when we go into an interior and you have 200 extras with all the period customs, all the period props, all of a sudden you get a, a blast of reality from that period that I loved. And was that scene shot after the shutdown or that was shot before? The first part before she crosses the bathroom 
and was shot before the shutdown and she's pregnant. And once she crosses into that bathroom, she gave birth to the baby and it's shot in a studio. And by the way, that's a bathroom that I designed or I tried to have made for the first time in 1996 with Tamara on Mimic. Mm. And I've been carrying that bathroom in my design book for almost three decades. And, and that was another reason why I love that scene, because I finally I saw that bathroom. that I <laughs> The bathroom of your dreams. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, I'm curious, when a film is done, you know, this film is now out in the world, out in theaters. And, and I'm curious, how do you let a film go? Does it stick with you for a while after? Is it always, do you think about it once it's done? But I think the fate of a movie... Uh, matters completely when you're launching it and then you move on. Uh, meaning you, you have to trust the movie to find its place and its audience and its ultimately its relationship with the viewers. No matter how successful it is or not, it, it cements that relationship on the years past uh, the release. So during the release, during this time, uh, I dedicate my day and my life to it coming out uh, into the world. And, uh, and then after that, fortunately for us, each movie is complicated enough that you have no time to look back. You know, like uh, finishing Pinocchio is going to be such a marathon and is so stressful already that I can see it erasing any retrospective uh, Look and, and then after that, the next one, which I got to keep secret, but it's really complicated, is going to take care of the next one. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask is, you know, I know you have Pinocchio that you're working on, but your, your mind already knows what story is going to be told after that. I know what I'm going to try for. Uh, I, again, uh, I wish people have this idea that directors are like Roman emperors sitting on a chaise lounge with uh, grapes and, and somebody fanning them that says, oh, let's go and do this other one. No, in reality, you hustle. And I know which one I'm going to hustle for. That doesn't mean I'm going to get it. Mm-hmm. I think looking at your films and looking at your what you've already accomplished probably gives you an, a boost when you say you want to do something next. But <laughs> it's still hard even for Guillermo del Toro, huh? It, it always, I find uh, that that is true for 99% of the filmmakers. And there is a 1% that basically is very, very rarefied strata that can almost have a, a, anything done. But uh, those are very, very rare. And I actually, I must tell you, I, I like the opposition. I kind of like it. I, I, I've grown that way. And I think the opposition is the world talking to you. And you need to listen. And whether it's in the filmmaking or the trying to make the movie, the universe will always give you the wisdom of what you need to do. Uh, that's why I, when you find something like that ending on the day that you shouldn't shoot it and you shoot it, more likely than not, that's what you needed. Mm-hmm. And we're almost out of time, but I, I want to wrap up with one more question. I'm curious if there is a unsung hero on this film, someone who worked on this film with you that you feel like really went above and beyond to make it a dream come true for you? I think that everybody in this movie, everybody delivered, and that's what makes it, uh, in my opinion, is one of my 
three favorite films I've made, and In a Good Day is the my favorite film I've made, is because um, everybody that uh, needed to deliver from the scenic painters or the continuity all the way to the highest positions and the actors, the stars, cinematography, blah, blah, everybody delivered. And, and the, the pride of those of us that made it after 10 years in Toronto, I must say, is felt. I think uh, the crews in Toronto love what we do and take great pride on it. So I would say everybody on the credits, everybody, everybody on the credits. The- Well, thank you for joining me for a little bit. I appreciate you talking about Nightmare Alley. And for our listeners, be sure to check it out in theaters now. And check it in black and white. Yes, see it both ways. (laughs) And now, David, let's hear your conversation with Kirsten Dunst. Um, Like Rebecca talking to Guillermo del Toro, you have talked to everyone involved in Power of the Dog uh, multiple times over the course of this season. Um, But she is just one of my favorite performances to talk to. And her career is so fascinating to talk about and where this performance fits in with it. So uh, how much of that do you guys get into in this brief conversation? Plenty. Thank you for asking. One interesting note is that Jane Campion is an enormous fan of Melancholia, which is maybe my personal favorite Kirsten Dunst movie, and uh, cast her off that, talked to her about that. And so we talked a lot about this kind of turn that Kirsten was able to make in her career, and she she pinpoints that one um, on my nudging a little bit as, as a movie that, you know, really represents when acting was has been as most fulfilling for her. Um, and, and just seeking out roles now that are, you know, with filmmakers that she really admires, like Campion, who she's wanted to work with for a really long time. And um, yeah, just she's grown up in this industry. And now that she has a better understanding of it, I think she's able to be a little bit more selective and, and know what she wants to do and, and how. Well, congrats on your first individual SAG award nomination. Thank you. I, is it my first or I, I actually meant to look this up. I thought maybe I was for interview with a vampire when I was younger. I looked it up. It seems to be the first. Okay. Okay. But maybe I didn't see the first one. <laughs> Listen, I think it was in 94, the first actual SAG Awards. Uh, that, yes, that's true. 94, because, well, someone else told me this information. And I don't know. I might have been nominated, but probably, okay, well, no, first solo. Either way. Uh, what What is the feeling, though? I mean... You've been in this business a long time, 94, as you mentioned. Um, So it's it's kind of a moment, right? It is. I mean, listen, it's so rare to be in a good movie that people like, that everyone likes. It's like, that's a very, that's lightning in a bottle. So I, I really know like how special this time is. It's, it's a little bit, you know, being at home all the time and not being able to celebrate with your fellow cast and things is, it's a little like, oh, we're, you know, we're all Zooming all the time. It's a little funny, but, but yeah, Jane Campion was a dream director for me to work with for a very long time. So the fact that I got to be in one of her movies and be one of her actresses was, you know, the probably it'll be one of the highlights of my career for all time, you know? Yeah. I, I know she sent you, first sent you a letter when you were in your 20s. What was your awareness of her at that time? And what did it mean when, you know, the call finally came for real? I had watched the piano at that point only. I didn't, I hadn't watched a a lot of her other work at that point. Um, But I, I knew that she was 
you know, the ultimate in female in directing and female performances. I mean, mm -hmm. Holly Hunter's performance in that film just when I think about the moment where she gets her fingers cut off and that fall and that look in her eyes, I just I can hearken back to it immediately. Like it it viscerally got implemented into my soul. You know what I mean? So yeah, that kind of acting, it's just that's the goal. You know? Right. <laughs> she gets that a lot, I feel like, out of her actors, including in this movie. <laughs> Wow, that's why I wanted to be in one of them. I'm like, oh, you understand what you what you want from an actress isn't what other people want. Like she wants real deal. Can you tell me a little bit about what that looks like? I've spoken to a few of your co-stars now and they all express that she has a really singular understanding of actors and, and how to work with them that they hadn't experienced before. I'm curious if that was true for you as well. Well, she really, she allows room for people to act and experience and live on the screen, you know, and live in the room and like make it feel authentic and real, like that you're really watching these people. It doesn't feel like, oh, we're, make, we're movie acting, you know, it fit, that environment really feels like we want to create something truly like feeling like it's happening in real life rather than performative acting it's much more um for me it feels much more real and alive if that makes does that make sense totally yeah it just it's for me it's just it's that kind of feeling like well, I got to do so much of that which is so fun as an actor is like really just experience these things and have them wash over her and um like cr you know kind of crumble her but um to be able to do that um and and have it be so visceral and not have it be cut up a bunch by editing and things like that. It's like, she wants things to live and breathe. And that's, that's some of my favorite acting. Yeah. I saw a, a clip of a documentary from when she made portrait of a lady with Nicole Kidman. And there's a, a scene of Nicole while, while the cameras aren't rolling, just sort of weeping inconsolably and Jane just being so in it with her. And it's, it's really incredible to watch. I'm curious for you, like, in the moment and your character has some pretty devastating scenes herself. How did you work with her? How did you, how did you find that dynamic? She creates a nice space and gives just enough notes, like, you know, in between takes and things like, and she's pretty direct too. Like with the natives, I would be doing the scene and it's pretty emotional. Yeah. She's like, okay, well now let's try one more drunk. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, also really simple and direct too. You know? Right. Like it's like, but I don't need much. Like the more talking, the more I lose it. I'm like, let's not talk. Let's just do. You know. So I'm, <laughs> if you give it to me, let's. You know, I'll I'll generate this quickly. I don't I don't want to stand around and talk about things for hours. Uh, <laughs> I don't mind doing that in rehearsal, talking about things. But when it comes to actual day on set, I just I'd rather just start working as opposed to taking long breaks. Um, but uh, yeah, she just let me, she's, emo she's emotionally very invested. So she really knows when she's got it or not, you know, mm -hmm. and you trust her because she's shaking. <laughs> like some people are like, you sure? You sure? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. You don't have to ask that question. Oh, you're like, okay, cool. Right. <laughs> God, you're happy. Cause honestly, my goal, a lot of times like, I just want to make Jane happy. When I didn't get a note, I was like, thank you for nailing that. Because I just, 
there is a part of you when you work with someone who's so epic like that, you just want to make them proud, you know? Yeah. You want to good for them and their film. Rose gets a a lot of, a lot of shading in this movie and a lot of nuance, um, which I think is a credit to both your performance and and Jane's adaptation. Um, I'm curious because about the balance you wanted to strike there. She is a character who falls victim to one's man's particular unceasing cruelty. Um, but she's introduced as extremely capable and there's a lot of hope there. What was that balance like for you? Because you see such short snippets of actually getting a peek into that, it had to really be full, you know, like whatever it was, that little scene of just not being able to wash the dishes. Like you get that feeling like, oh, that's not her place anymore. And she is losing everything that was her creature comforts that made her feel purposeful in life were taken mm-hmm. away from her, which um, when you run an inn, you're so busy all day and like cooking and cleaning and making the tables beautiful. And, you know, there's like chores to be done all day and you're useful as a human. Yeah. And then you don't have anything. It's like, then you feel more vulnerable and get inside your head. And then his brother's getting inside your head. And I just really mapped out basically her decline of things because you don't want her crying right away when he like does the banjo when I go outside and take that breath you don't want someone broken already you got to watch that so it's like I really had to map that out so Rose wasn't like girl just go to your husband and like tell him (laughs) what's going on you know so (laughs) I mean there was a little bit of that in the movie but it was um cut out but I do try and talk to Jesse and I say you know like I don't think your brother likes me I don't think I, I do it in a very delicate way, but I'm, right. you know, maybe we can get our own house one day, you know, but that was cut out, I think for tension purposes, which mm-hmm. makes sense to me um, to keep that ambiguity. But like, I even go up to, there was even a shot where I go up to Phil and I'm like, how come you don't like me? And I'm all, <laughs> I look all crazy, <laughs> drunk and <laughs> sad. <laughs> um, but listen, I laugh about it now, but I think, I have to laugh because I really did have to, um, it was a really intense part to play emotionally. Yeah. It was like not a fun, um, place to live inside of myself, but also I think that like, I'm proud to be able to like release that into Rose and have, and the response of that has been really rewarding that it's moved people. So that's, you know, my main, that's like the best when you feel like, you've touched people in that way is, you know, feels good. Yeah. Is there something in her that you connected with particularly? Um, her, she's a much older place. I feel like a younger me more insecure or people pleasing or scared to say something like, I don't really have, that's not me now, but I could relate to those feelings in a younger version of myself. When I spoke to Jane about your performance, she brought up Melancholia, and I know you've also <laughs> talked about how she she told you she loved you in that. Um, as one she really had an affection for, I think last year was the movie's 10th anniversary, and it had a kind of understandable pandemic-era resurgence a little bit. And it's also just a movie that lingers for me personally. I feel like I keep seeing it get brought up over the past year or two, whether in the context of you in this movie or or otherwise, has it lingered for you in a particular way? It's one of my favorites of yours. It's one of my favorites I've been in too. And making that movie was like the most fun acting camp. You know, it was just like, so I had such a good time and it just felt so 
vulnerable and open and like everyone was it's very collaborative and it was a cozy set I know that sounds weird but it was <laughs> just I believe it <laughs> yeah it was so cozy um I think that's just the European style of making films though too it's not like a bunch of riff like it's not like a bunch of like Ugh, like production and cut and like long breaks and then okay let's do another take after we've touched everybody a million times like no it's like <laughs> there's a flow and an energy to that the sets that set um there was that and also um i think it's just like depression is something really boring to watch on camera but he made it something really exciting by making it the end of the world as well so it's like <laughs> it's really the only movie about depression that's like fun to watch and like <laughs> it still gets to you you know and it's, it's still like relatable you having been in this business so long you've talked about there being a period where acting didn't feel as exciting to you i was looking back at your past credits and there were years you'd have three four projects out in the same year i mean it must have also felt like maybe it was getting to be a little much yeah i think there's definitely a mentality of like oh you're making money you're doing the good like keep working you know I'm sure there was that. Um, I didn't know. Like three projects at once, really, that came out in one year. That's a lot. Yeah. Like 2000, 2001 was like, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Slowly fall, Kirsten. I don't know. I feel like now I'm just like one movie a year is plenty for me. Um, Yeah, I think um, I just had to, I think because I grew up, in this industry and had to learn about movies while I was making movies and learn about my own taste and what I liked about performances and movies. I kind of had to grow into um, myself as an actress too. And Mm. that really changed for me. Um, At a certain point, I was like, I think I was doing it. It was all going out to other people, to the director, making sure, you know, everyone else is happy. And I didn't really make it so much for myself. Or, and I didn't know how to navigate that relationship between the director and me where I didn't feel like I was just like pleasing, like trying to get it right for them rather than like fully experiencing it for myself. Or like, um, yeah, there was some, you know, it just, it, it was becoming not fun anymore. So I think what I did was I took a script, script to a bunch of different acting teachers, um, a bunch of famous acting teachers and found the one that worked best for me in my brain. So ever Mm. since that, then it's only been about doing it for myself. Right. So around when was this? Is there like a movie that you can pinpoint and say this was a a turning point? I did it on all good things. I did it. Ah, okay. Yeah. And it's interesting because my co-star in that also works with the lady that I eventually ended up with. Huh. Yeah serendipitous so it's kind of great because we were acting from a similar place another um favorite of mine uh, of your performances is, is the beguiled which is one that i think it's talked about maybe a little bit less you've been acting in sophia's movies at various stages of your acting career your adult life you can kind of almost mark stages of your career from project to project does it feel that way yes it does it does because i know like it was nice to go from Broville Spider-Man to a very intimate playing, you know, a queen in Versailles with Sophia. <laughs> it was a great balance. And another thing was that, like, I remember, you know, doing Interview with the Vampire with all these incredible, like, the biggest male actors. Yep. You know, and then going to Little Women, which was, like, the biggest female actors with a female director. So, to me, I never had that differentiation of, like, 
that immediately embedded in my brain, like a lesson that I took with me for the rest of my life that I didn't even realize I was learning that there is no difference in, you know, a male or a female direct, like there was nothing, there was never that in my brain, you know? So I think always having Sophia to go back to was, was a, was good for my confidence as a woman too, just in this industry. And like, yeah, you know, I'm curious coming off a project like power Two, with the attention and I imagine artistic fulfillment, does it encourage you to go in a particular direction? And you mentioned one one movie a year now being <laughs> plenty. Um, but like, how, how do you kind of leave something like that? Um, you know, it's given me so many opportunities in my career. Mm-hmm. It's like opens new doors again. So for me, it's like being in Jane's movie and having, you know, had this experience of it, people liking it and getting that kind of momentum has really helped, I think, give me new opportunities. So for my career, it couldn't be better or come at a better time. What about working with Jane going forward is something you maybe hope to carry with a with another director? Every movie, I don't know. It's like, I don't, it's like I, every movie's its own home or something. Yeah. Like, like, oh, we're in this home now and this is how this microwave works. And this is how like, it's, just, <laughs> I, I, you know what I mean? It's so, I can't, every home's so different. I can't take that home. You know, I can't put that couch in this house. You know what I mean? I don't know. <laughs> right. It's just, that's the best way I can describe it. It's like, that's why I like making movies. Cause I don't have to take anything from that to this right. next thing. Yeah. I like that. There's a whole new dynamic on every movie set and each director is very different in the way they are on set. And I appreciate that. <laughs> I think that's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you've probably worked with enough directors where you, yeah, you've learned that you can't take one from the, from one to the next. It's just, yeah, it's not because you're making a totally different movie and it's just not, it's not the vibe, you know? It's like, yeah, yeah there's no Rose in the next film role I'm playing, which I'm very happy about. It's like the antithesis of Rose. <laughs> you, and, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I mean, is a role like Rose hard, hard to shake at all for you? Having done this in so many different, kinds of roles um do you find it easier to shake off a you know more intense role like this i think listen when i go home it's not like i want to like bring rose home or live in rose when i get home but there's definitely it does seep into your into your life until the movie's over it does it just it has to you know so there's no really i definitely felt more like i questioned myself more and i was way more insecure in like, did I get that? Is that, you know what I mean? Like, did I, I just second to guess myself more because I was playing someone who was so insecure. So that did seep into my life a little bit. Um, so I was very lucky to come home to Jesse who totally understood. I was going to ask <laughs> the whole dynamic of the set and everything that I had him to come home to. And like, he totally understood everything I was talking about. And so to have that, to have, you know, your best friend who gets exactly what's happening for you gave me so much comfort, you know, to have him there and understanding. I heard um, Jane would sometimes take a nap during lunch. So would I. <laughs> <laughs> I it feels like a good way to sort of sleep it yeah, off a little bit. Reset this, <laughs> this day. Also, I am, I am not a morning person. Like I really, I, I don't know if it's growing up and having to get up early for like shoots or not say. like a teenager that gets to sleep in. I've really become like resentful of the morning. 
morning, which is really bad for an actress because you wake up so early for work. Um, but I'm really, the older I get, the grumpier I am. So that, 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 um, that nap at lunch is way more important. I'd rather shove food in my mouth while I'm getting my makeup or hair retouched than wasting that time not napping. And that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. As always, you can read us on VanityFair.com, including um, the uh, Oscar special issue articles we mentioned, Richard Sundance coverage, and much more. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7035. We love hearing from you as always. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the award we want to add to the Oscar ceremony goes to Richard Lawson. The award for best film that taught us to live again goes to... (laughs) 